Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be spending our time in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. While you're turning to the book of Colossians, I I just want to take this time. I want to take the time to thank the elders of this church for this opportunity. The opportunity to to, to stand up here and preach from God's Word. This, This is a joy and this is an honor. I... I am so thankful that someone has given me the opportunity to do this. In Kingsway Church, do you know how much your pastors love you and both and love serving you? When visiting with Matthew last week, he told me that you're a congregation who loves God's Word and loves hearing from God's Word. Listen, there, there is hardly a more distinctive, uh, honoring distinctive one can give to his congregation. So... I wanted to take that time to just say I, I am very encouraged by your godly example as a congregation. Now let's, let's please turn our attention to what the Bible has to say about Christ in verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we we come corporately before You at this time, and we... We really, really, really want to hear from you. You are the most important in our life. And we believe that your word is is infallible and it's inspired and that when it speaks, you are speaking. So Lord, would you help us to lean in, help us to press in. Thousands of things are happening in our lives which are demanding our attention. But I beg of you to help us. Feel the weight of your word this morning. Help us to apply your word this morning. Illumine our minds, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. One of the most beloved movies that have ever been produced on American soil is the classic Forrest Gump. For whatever reason, good or bad, the American people love this movie. Well, without getting into a lot of the details of the film, there's one scene that will serve us to consider this morning. On October 1st, 1979, Forrest Gump just started running. He just started running. From his home in in Greenbow, Alabama, Forrest Gump runs to the bottom of California, then to Maine, to the 
at the top of the East Coast, and then he concludes with one more stretch across the, across the country to the West Coast. In total, in this fictional film, he ran for three years and two months. And in that time, he ran 15,248 miles. When asked, when asked by followers the reason why he was running, he simply said, I just felt like running. (laughs) I just felt like running. Well, there was an elder in the Colossian church who, like Forrest Gump, dropped everything and left town. But unlike Forrest Gump, our guy, his name was Epaphras, was on a mission. He had a purpose. See, Epaphras had growing concerns about the health of his church that he was serving in. So, so he personally traveled from his city of Colossae to visit Paul in Rome with the intention of retrieving this letter that we are reading from and studying this morning. Epaphras traveled the 1,000-mile journey on foot, which took him two to three weeks. And and the reason he did this, the reason he dropped everything and and took the 1,000-mile journey on foot was because the Colossian church was in danger of losing the gospel. The gospel. The man risked his life traveling, left his wife and kids, and took a leave of absence from work for two months, all for the sake of the gospel. So now let's, let's take a step back and let's consider our, our passage that we're looking at this morning in its, in its context. Just before this, Paul had modeled a prayer for the Colossians and just talked about all that God had, had done to save them, namely... He delivered them from the domain of darkness and He transferred them to the kingdom of His Son in whom whom they and we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But now, after all of that, but now, as we read through the first chapter, now in our passage, Paul just, just goes off talking about Jesus. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because the church wasn't being told to abandon Jesus by some false teachers that you'll hear, hear about in a moment. They, no, they weren't being told to abandon Jesus, but rather that knowing Christ and following Christ, it, is, it, it isn't quite sufficient. They needed more to truly arrive spiritually. So these false teachers, they weren't questioning the Colossians' salvation But instead, they were stating that in order for one to know God, in order for one to truly arrive with God, in order for one to really grow, they needed more than Christ. And so, what Paul is going to do, having just acknowledged their salvation, he's now now going to speak about how massive that salvation is and just how great the one who brought it about is. And so, in our, in our text today, if we could extract, if we could write down in one sentence, what's Paul's big idea? What's the main idea? If we could crystallize Paul's big idea in this passage, this, this is what I think it would be. The supremacy of Christ guarantees the Christian's relationship 
with God. I'm going to try to unpack that just a little bit. I'll say it again. The supremacy of Christ, by that I mean the superiority of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the accomplishment of Christ, the finished work on the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, that, that guarantees, it makes sure of the Christian's relationship, the Christian's growth, the Christian's status with God. Nothing else is needed. So, so see, what Paul is interested in doing is reminding the church of, of Christ's person and his work. He's casting a vision. He's casting a vision of the, of the person of Christ in his glory for the believer's edification and sanctification. He's, he's painting a portrait of Christ that not only leaves the mind in awe, but also roots the roots hope in the supremacy, the status, the power of Christ. So, as believers behold the glory of Christ, they find themselves most satisfied, most content, and most secure. So, what Paul is going to do, he's got some work to do. And so what he's going to do to convince us, and, and convince the Colossians that they don't need anything else in addition to Jesus. That our relationship with God in Christ is secure. That we are secure in Him. He's going to show us four things. Four things about Christ that show His supremacy. His superiority. Four, four aspects, if you will, of Christ's supremacy. The first thing He's going to show us is in verse 15. And that's Christ's relationship to God. I'll say it again in case you're writing it down. It's Christ's relationship to God. So, get your Bibles. Please look back with me at verse 15, which, which says this. He is the image of the invisible God. Do you remember that story in John 14? And Jesus is talking to the disciples, and it's just a few days before his death, and he delivers to them those incredible words. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip, Philip, one of the disciples, says in response, Lord, show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father and and, and that, that's enough for us. In other words, this is what Philip was saying. Lord, if, if you can simply give us a glimpse, a peek into heaven to see God, our faith will survive and we will be able to persevere after you leave. But the Lord says this in response. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Listen, listen. It's incredible. Whoever has seen me seen the Father. Oh my, can you feel the weight of this claim from Christ? This would have been one of those moments that I would have loved to be present for. It's the same idea that Paul is communicating in verse 15. 
But when you behold the person of Christ, you are looking at God himself. The, and one commentator says it this way. The very nature and the character of God have been perfect, perfectly revealed in Christ. In Christ, the invisible has become visible. So to press Paul's point even further, our friend John Owen puts it this way in his book, The Glory of Christ. He says this, The glory of God includes both the holy properties of His nature and the things He has purposed to do. I don't really understand what he's talking about there, but I understand the rest of this. The only way we can know these things of God is in the face or person of Jesus Christ. Christ is specially glorious because He and He alone perfectly reveals God's nature and will to us. You hadn't been listening? This is where you listen. Without Christ, we would have known nothing truly about God, for He would have been eternally invisible to us. We would never have seen God at any time, either in this life or in the next one. Without Christ, God would still be to us the invisible God. We see the glory of God only in the person of Christ. This doesn't get your blood pumping. Lord, I pray, I pray at this moment that you would help us to just see this glory. Now I turn and say, what happens? What happens when, when a person never comes to grip with this, this glorious reality? I'll tell you what happens. These people know of no Christianity. In fact, that's what some of the false teachers in the Colossian church wanted. They desired Christianity without the Christ. They wanted to form and to fashion Christ into the image of their own choosing. So, instead of worshiping the true Christ, they worshiped an image of their own invention or imagination. They shaped Christ into an image of their ideas, instead of submitting to God's revelation of the true character and person of Jesus. Well... We see that nothing is new under the sun as we observe the relevance of God's word to address this very error in our very day. Look, if you go out from here and you ask any Muslim about Jesus, they will start with how much they love him. But they love not the Jesus of history or the Jesus of the Bible, but a Jesus of their own imagination. To them, he's only a prophet and a good man. But to Paul, he is God incarnate. You ask any Jehovah Witness and they they will say that Christ is just a man and in no way God. But Paul says Christ is God. And within Christianity, we often have a hard time thinking of Jesus as our judge. We say to ourselves, my Jesus would never judge or condemn anyone. My Jesus is only a Jesus of love. Well, my friend, if that's you this morning, that is not the Jesus that is presented in the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament is sitting on His throne, waiting for the day that He will come back and judge the world in righteousness. There is a law in Christ. 
And look back with me to verse 15 as Paul finishes his sentence. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I want to start as we're unpacking this verse. I want to start with what a number of that a number of people have taken this verse out of its context and have used it as a proof text for Christ being created by God. I'm sure you've you've heard that before. But what I want to do, what I want to do this morning is show you that that is not at all what Paul is teaching us. In fact, what Paul is teaching us by using this word is he's teaching us about the rank and the priority of Christ. Look, this is, an old, this is Old Testament language, which was often used to speak about one who had a special place in their father's love. It was used to indicate priority and privilege. So, so let's do a little biblical theology. In Exodus, Israel is called God's firstborn. And Psalm 89 says of David, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So notice, notice with me that those, these passages from the Old Testament. The firstborn isn't something indicating time, like that he was born in time, firstborn in time, but instead it's indicating privilege. It's an important distinction. So therefore, we can conclude that Paul is bringing an Old Testament term and he's applying it to Christ. You can tell I'm I'm really laboring. I'm laboring at this point because so many have taken this verse out of context. They said that Christ was created in the beginning of creation. But that's not at all what Paul's saying. Look, we don't read the Bible like, like, like... these people are encouraging. We don't, we don't turn the pages of Scripture and then we find a verse that fits our, fits our framework of thinking and then just rip it out of context and apply it to our framework to justify what we're saying. No, no, no. That's not what we do with God's Word. No. Because here's, here's why. When we do that, we run the risk of taking a verse which is loaded with Christ-exalting truth and reducing it to heresy. This, this is Christ-exalting. For someone to say that Christ is the firstborn, that is Christ-exalting, not Christ-limiting. So, so after, after Paul has established a look at the relationship Christ shares with God, he progresses to show us Christ's relationship to creation, which is our second point. If you're taking notes, it's going to be this. Christ's relationship... Creation. This is verses 16 and 17. We're just going to start with 16. For in Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Now, as we begin to unpack this verse, Look with me at how the ESV translates this second word. It reads, For by Him all things were created. Translators did this. They they translate it this way. This little preposition to indicate that Christ was the instrument of creation. By using that little preposition by, it's indicating that Christ is the 
is the uh, instrument of creation. Now, this is true. This is very true. As we see in John 1 and 1 Corinthians 8. And listen, I, I admit this before I make my point. Smart guys, which is not me, smart guys, they go back and forth in this discussion. Regardless of where I land, it's entirely conceivable that, that ESV has got it right by saying bye. And that could very well be Paul's intention. However, however, with that being said, I think in this, this one, it would be more accurate to translate this little preposition like such. For in him, all things were created. So you're, you're wondering, Matt, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, possibly. But this, this, is, this is a small, but I hope as you see as we go, a very, very weighty distinction. For if Christ was merely the instrument of creation, as indicated by the preposition by, then it could be possible for creation itself to exist without Christ just as a building exists long after the builder is gone. But Paul's point in this text, I I think, is much more fundamental. He's stressing, using the preposition in, to indicate that Christ is the location of creation. Or, Or, as some commentators put it, He's the very sphere, the very centerpiece of creation. Therefore, what this means is if you take away Christ, all of existence would suck up into inexistence. We would cease to be. There'd be no trees, no mountains, no oceans, no planets, no people, no stars. Everything would cease to be. The very existence of Christ guarantees the continuation of life and reality. What an incredible Christ we worship. Listen, if you just think about that, if somehow Christ could cease to be, the very existence as we know it would no longer be. It would be like a vacuum sucking existence into inexistence. He is incredible. It's at this point, I'm going to try to bring it home even further for us to apply it in our daily lives It's at this point that I can imagine a first grade student raising their hand, asking in curiosity, Sir, so who who created heaven? Christ did. What about earth, sir? Christ did. What about all the things that are in heaven? Well, Christ did. What about all the things that are on earth? There's so much. Well, Christ did. What about all the people? Christ did. What about angels and demons? Christ did. Christ created it all. And why, sir? Why did he create them all? From the dust of the earth to the grandeur of the universe, Christ made it all to testify concerning his own glory. It's all for him and by him. And so listen, if you've got little ones today, you get to walk out of this place. And you get to take them by the hand. And you get to begin pointing with them. Pointing with them 
at every single thing that both you and them see and you point with them and you say at every one of those objects, you see every tree, every person walking on the road. At night, you see every star. As you study astronomy, you see every galaxy. You see every planet. You see every lake and ocean, the fish in there and the the birds. You see it all and you get to say with them, Without Christ, you would not know life. And if he could somehow cease to be, you would cease to be. That's incredible. That's incredible. So as you, as you can observe, Paul is, is he's just systematically showing us that there is nothing that is which doesn't have a relationship to Christ. So now he takes our minds and he sets them to consider Christ's relationship to the church in verse 18. It's going to be our third point. Christ's relationship to the church. Let's look back at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. One commentator says that with this move in Paul's writing, Christ passes from a, a creation perspective to a new creation perspective. And he does so, oh, praise the Lord, he does so by using language that we're familiar with. The analogy that Paul provides us with Namely, that Christ is the head and his people, the church, are the body. It helps us grasp our Lord's relationship to his bride. So, to state the obvious, the head of a person is the location in which the mind is located. Thanks, Matt. And the mind is the thinking, the conscious, the dictating organ. It's the most important organ in the body because it controls all of the bodily functions. It tells everything else in the body what to do. Without the mind, there would be no functioning, be, functioning body because the body is dependent upon the mind for its memory and movements. That's precisely the same way Paul is using the analogy here in our text. So let's pause and let's, let's refocus our mind with what we've already learned about Christ so, so that we can refocus our minds and stay tracking with the text Let's, let, let me enter, let's entertain the following question. Who is the he mentioned in the beginning of verse 18? Well, it is precisely the he who is the image of God. It is precisely the he who is the firstborn or absolute supreme superior one. It is the he who is by his very being or existence upholding the entire universe. It is the very He who has eternally existed before all things. Yes, that's the He. That's the He who is also the head, the mind, the coordinator, the originator of the church. One commentator says it like this, Christ is the source of all truth, all knowledge, all wisdom, all growth, and all guidance in the church. At the conclusion of this evidence, can you feel, can you feel your faith rising and being strengthened? Look who is in control. 
Look who's in control of the church. It's Christ. Trust Him. It's Christ. He's proving Himself. Proving Himself. One thing after another. I'm the image of God. My very existence upholds the universe. Christ is taking care of the church. So, let's look back at verse 18b, which reads, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Here again we see that firstborn language as we did earlier. Now, if we're good Bible people, we're familiar with the number of people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. For, for instance, remember in 2 Kings 4 when Elijah raised that little boy from the dead. Well, Christ certainly wasn't born. Christ was certainly born after this boy. How then is he considered the firstborn from the dead? Uh, again, again, the term is used the exact same way that it was used in verse 15. It's referring to rank. It's referring to privilege. It's referring to priority. It means that Christ is superior to all who have died before Him. It means that Christ, for Christ to be the firstborn from the dead, is for Him to be the superior one who's been raised from the dead. And by beginning... It means that Christ is the founder of a new humanity. For thousands of years, God's people have always had a hope in life after the grave. And particularly, life which included their body. But each saint, each and every saint, have gone into the ground and their bodies have never risen back up. But Christ, but Christ, after being put to death by being hung on that cross where he bore the sins in his body for countless millions, was placed into a tomb like the rest of God's people. But unlike the rest of God's people, he was raised from the dead on that third day. He came up from the grave having an entirely resurrected body, a glorified body. And Paul tells us that Christ was the beginning. The beginning of what? Again, the beginning or founder of the new order of resurrection. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's just bring it home again in application. Please recognize the great accomplishment of Christ's resurrection and the implication that it has upon your life today as a believer. Are you sick? Are you sick to a resurrected body that Christ accomplished it will never get sick. Do you have any disabilities? Your resurrected body will, won't, will never have a disability. It will be free from the possibility of ever receiving a disability. And do you ever feel, do you ever feel that constraint because of indwelling sin? It doesn't happen that often, but I know you felt it. Lord, because of indwelling sin, I just can't love you the way that I want to love you. I feel, I feel this love that I have for you, but, it, but it, I just, I can't have it all the time. It just comes and it goes, oh, listen, that resurrected body that you're going to get, it won't be like that. 
You'll be, you'll have a glorified body and there won't be indwelling sin. You'll be free from the restraints of sin to love your Savior for all of eternity. That's the accomplishment of that resurrected body. So we must render the question, why? Why does it matter for Christ to be the first to receive a resurrected body? Look at the, verse, look at the end of verse 18. It reads, That in everything He might be preeminent. Christ has for all of eternity been preeminent over the entire created order. The only thing which remained for him to accomplish was preeminence over a new creation. There remains not one square inch in the entire universe by which Christ doesn't reign as the supreme Lord. Nothing is outside of his absolute reign and authority. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. He is the preeminent one. Everything. You look at anything and you go, he's not preeminent over that. Oh, yes, he is. Everything. Everything in your life. Every trial in your life. Every circumstance in your life. He's superior. Incredible. So this leads us to our fourth and our final point. Christ's accomplished purposes. It's going to be verses 19 and 20. I'm going to say it again. Christ's accomplished purposes. So please look with me at verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remember at the beginning when we were discussing the presence of false teachers in the Colossian church? It'd be helpful and appropriate, appropriate to re-engage with those false teachers at this point. You see that word at the beginning of the, ver- at the beginning of the verse, fullness. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's a strange word in the vocabulary of the New Testament. In fact, this is the only time that it's used in the entire New Testament. So, to make a long story short. The word was significant and had a lot of meaning to the Colossian people. The false teachers frequently used that word to describe an experience. An experience that the Colossians were missing out on because they didn't accept their teaching. Remember that teaching at the beginning. So Paul takes their same word, that fullness word, he takes their same word and he applies it to What then is he seeking to accomplish? Well, precisely. mm, Precisely that the fullness that you Colossians and you brothers and sisters are seeking, the fullness that you're seeking is to be found in Christ. Only, only in Christ can this fullness be found. Here's the takeaway. All that can be known And experienced of God is to be found in Christ. So, do you want a deeper and richer experience of God in your Christian life? It won't come by 
four easy steps. Or go buy the next book on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. No, 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 no. It will only come by a seeking and beholding of the person of Christ. Please look back with me at verse 20. And through him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. After explaining that God had chosen to fully dwell in the person of Jesus Christ, this description further explains how Christ is reconciling all things unto himself. Namely, by the peace brought by the blood of his death on that cross. But so far in explaining this text, I've presupposed, we presuppose the necessity for Christ to make all things right in the created universe. So, so let's take some time to consider this. When God's first man and first woman sinned, there was immediately damage to the entire created order. The peace which characterized the earth instantaneously was forfeited. Everything was touched by death and decay. Man, nature, animal, space, everything. Everything was touched by death and decay. There was an immediate divide in the creative purposes of God. The need for God to make things right included not just man, but all of creation. So here's how I worded it to help me grasp its meaning better. This is, this is just me looking at the text going, trying, trying to word it just so I can get it. And I said this, I don't even know if it will help, but I hope it does. Through Christ, making right absolutely everything, ultimately back to Christ, no matter where it exists, did so by the bridge of peace, which is his death on the cross. So this, this is where I would like to stop. This is where I'd like to stop, and I'd like to engage with any non-Christian present with us today. Let me start by saying how thankful I am that you're here today. But if you're a non-Christian, you're being directly addressed by God this morning through his word. I mean, Directly. You are being directly addressed by God this morning through His Word. If there is a need for Christ, as seen in verse 20, to reconcile all things unto Himself, that presupposes a problem in which you have with God. Look, you are in desperate need of Christ. Look, I know, I know if you're a non-believer here today, you may be experiencing a number of trials and tribulations, a number of hard things in your life. And they hurt and they sting and you want to know when they're going to go away. But let me tell you something. That is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not the temporary necessity for all these, these, these hurtful, small things to go. No, no. Your greatest problem is that you have offended a holy God. 
by your very nature. You are in opposition to God and you know this to be true. You know this to be true. For so long you have ger- you've heard that God calls you to a certain way of life. And you keep saying, oh, one day, perhaps when I get married, perhaps when I have kids, perhaps when I retire, one day I will get right with Him. Look, stop. Stop doing that. Stop running. Stop saying that. Realize with me in this moment that it won't ever happen. You have offended God. He has said, do this, and you have said, no. Stop. Please. This is eternity. The only way for you to be right with God is not to do a number of things, but to now, where you are, confess, confess. God, that man said, I've offended you, and I feel it. I feel it in my heart. I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. And I've heard that Christ, Christ alone is that forgiveness. Do it now. Please, do it now. This is eternity. So as we come to a close, remember our summary sentence from this morning. It is the supremacy of Christ guarantees the Christian's relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, there is a banquet table of fullness and love, which is Christ waiting for us to feast at. It is a good thing to desire more of God in your life. Paul never got on to the Colossians for their desire for more of God's fullness in their life. Instead, he reoriented and redirected their gaze, their attention to a place which will bring about that desire. That's what I hope this text did for you today. So go from here. Go from here and press in to know God. To meet with God. And be informed that it will only come by way of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our great God, we've seen this morning how precise your word is to instruct us, to teach us, to rebuke us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. and I pray for myself. Lord, help us to press in to know you through Christ. We love you so much. His name we pray. Amen.